All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 170. That's a lot of episodes, man. Uh, we have Jason Lindgren today, as usual, and the great Baldini will be returning. Um, this is going to be a wide-ranging discussion, and I guess I won't describe it. We'll just jump in. Welcome, Jason. Good morning. Anything for the intro? Anything going on with the film, film festivals? Any, any, Anything we should mention or no? Just a bit of an insert here. Jay and Yvonne just did another episode of Reality Check, the one we did a few weeks ago. Yeah. And they made mention of us in the beginning. Oh, did they? So apparently we left a good impression. They were talking about the moon and all that because here we are at the 50th anniversary of Apollo. Right. I think they were a little surprised because uh, we agreed to go talk about the lunar wave and it doesn't take long before we, you know, cover quite a bit. But the Apollo thing's a heck of a thing. That was yesterday. We're recording here on Sunday, so the the anniversary was yesterday. There's a heat wave all the way across the nation, keeping lots of people in front of their televisions. And I started to count uh, in the TV listings how many Apollo shows were on, and I gave up at about 50, and I only made it through the first half of the day. Um, Crazy how much Apollo is coming. And not only that, uh, HBO started running uh, First Man yesterday, of course. Oh, yeah, I've been expecting that. Yeah, it's all all synchronized, um, and you can tell by looking at what channels are what, uh, the demographics they're hitting. It's just full spectrum everywhere we go. But anyhow, uh, do we have anything else, or should we get the Great Baldini in here? Let's get him in. All right, man. Welcome, Mr. The Great Baldini. <laughs> well, thank you, Crow, and, and hi, Jason. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. It's always a, a fascinating discussion, no matter where we go. Indeed. Uh, any any news from your part of the world uh, in the western part of the United States? You know, um, I, I've been watching with um, great fascination as well the last couple of months as the uh, the traction uh, certainly picks up on the uh, celebration of the the greatest hoax uh, in humanity and um, how hard they're pushing for that. And and I think again, the rational minded person would just have to ask the logical question: Is if they're pushing it so hard, me thinks that does protest too much. Uh, there's an awful, <laughs> awful lot of pushback. Um, more and more people seem to be awakening to it. I've seen several polls that show uh, not everybody's on board with that narrative anymore. And uh, they certainly <clears throat> seem to be fighting back in earnest. Uh, that and the uh, uh, proposed storming of uh, Area 51, which I know you guys covered uh, last week with Wayne a little bit, uh, and the pushing of that uh, uh, alien uh, narrative as well. So it, interesting times indeed, certainly. Right. You know, so many people coming to comment that they never realized Neil Armstrong backwards is alien. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing. They were running a live show. One of the guys from the old Mythbusters who used to go out and show for everyone, uh, Mr. Savage, was on the National Mall where they had this whole thing set up to celebrate the Apollo anniversary. And that's when I just kind of quit worrying about any of it. They showed a wide shot of the mall that, I mean, there was maybe 50 people there. It was just so not attended, but anyhow, you want to grab the the reins here, Jason, where do you want to go? Right. We're going to do a different approach here. And we felt it was important to do a show on what it is we are all about here to define who we are and what we are trying to accomplish with our weekly releases, as well as what we are not trying to do. We're always having new folks finding us every day, of course, and this is going to be a discussion to help both new and continuing listeners to understand us a bit better, with some additional input, of course, from our friend, the great Baldini. Right. Um, And there's some critical points to make as we set out here. Uh, So many people follow our content and they commiserate 
that no one gets them and they can't communicate with people. And I regularly say, if you look at this logically, um, nothing has changed basically mostly since you were five years old. And that's kind of true. Of course, things have changed in our world. But the way the world operates really hasn't changed very much from the time anyone was very young. It's just what you know that's changed. And when you logically look at what's going on, you have to come to the realization the only mind you can change is your own. And that is, in fact, change. Um, people will come around when they're ready, if they're ready, when they're ready. Um, and that is really where most of the issues come up, where people begin to argue and fight about things. And, of course, the Flat Earth Movement is the perfect example. But how often do you go online and see someone yelling, oh, you globetard, oh, you flathead, just unhelpful, man. Um, and before the Internet, people did not interact in this way to, to that degree. Um, it was an exchange of ideas back in the day when two people had opposing views. But anyhow, Jason, go ahead, man, take it. I think that was saved for political debates on the floor of the uh, whatever building you happened to be in at the time. <laughs> yeah, um, it's different times now. There is a whole kind of trained way people act online. And a lot of it has to do if you don't think or believe what I do, then, then we're at odds. And that's unfortunate. There's no, there's no reason for that kind of you know, for people to conduct themselves in that way. So again, we're going to do things a little differently this time. It's going to be more of a free-form discussion between the three of us to try and get things to be a little more personal and give you something to relate to without us just giving you knowledge. It's going to be a little more from the heart, I think is a fair thing to say. So let's start out with having a brief discussion on the meaning of belief is the enemy of knowing. Baldini, you want to jump in there? Everyone knows it's kind of the tagline um, that I put around this podcast. And I will say, as I always do, this is not a shot at anyone's religious, religious beliefs. It's the opposite of that. People have the right to choose any spiritual path they want. When I say belief is the enemy of knowing, it is not aimed at religious belief. Well, I, I think that's a not only a great place to start, but I will say, is in fact, that was one of the um, the things that kind of turned me on to um, to listening to you. I, I mean, I had seen the the lunar wave footage and some other very fascinating things that you put up in terms of astrophotography, uh, but it was the regular podcast. Um, you touched upon a you know a couple of subjects that I was researching, and I yeah you know, didn't didn't always agree with everything, but I, the tagline I, I thought was particularly salient because you really well encapsulated something that I had already come to, which was that most of my major epiphanal watershed moments of understanding um, only came when I challenged previously held beliefs, um, that it was um, the, the attempt that we have to defend certain beliefs or ways of thinking um, that makes it impossible to move forward. And it's only when we challenge those things can we uh, at least consider uh, new information. And often that new information is in contrast and uh, contrary to our previously held beliefs. So, um, yeah, I think it's a. It is certainly um, can seem dangerous to somebody who has a, a belief system that they feel is either under attack or under assault by that. Uh, but um, you know, for for myself, and I know I differ from others in this. Um, you know, I, uh, I've made it pretty clear to most people who know me that I have very little patience for corporate organized religion because of, of its history and its intention. But um, I'm a, a pretty sincere and, and devoted um, follower of the guy Jesus. So um, in that sense, uh, I, I don't have to defend a belief system. I just um, take things as I see it. And I'm all about trying to seek the truth, right? So um, I try to get that where I can find it. 
Um, and, and I have learned that there's truth in all kinds of places, whether that comes from the uh, you know, Judeo-Christian teachings or whether the Bhagavad Gita or whether uh, ancient writings of all kinds, there's wisdom to be had everywhere. Uh, and if you just throw the baby out with the bathwater, you're missing um, huge tr- chunks of uh, very enlightening things and very deep truths about humanity and, and our um, who we are generally. And I think um, as I look at the landscape, that is probably one of them. Of all the things that are occulted and hidden from us, um, the nature of our world and the nature of humanity are probably the two biggest things that they're trying to hide from us. So if you, if you want to, to really get some wisdom and understanding uh, about the nature of where you live and who you are, um, you, you have to be able to set aside preconceived notions and really challenge everything, neither trying to prove or disprove those things, but to just consider um, the, the veracity of the information itself and what makes the most sense and use a combination of, uh, so I'd like to say, um, deductive, inductive, and abductive reasoning to work these things out for yourself and take a preponderance of the evidence. And um, I think for me, the most uh, the, the scariest thing, and I think it's probably true for most people, is that if you um, do manage to break down the house of cards of any belief system or, or come down to your foundational beliefs and you're left in a landscape of nothingness, that's a little bit scary. And to start over, um, you have to sort of accept that you just aren't going to know. Um, it's very unlikely that we're going to come to um, full knowledge of all truth. But what you have to do is just kind of build from uh, from the foundational stuff and test the things um, again, it says this in scripture, test all things to see if it's going to be true. So you have to be able to do that um, in, in yourself and not really rely on what somebody else tells you is true, not rely on appeal to authority or appeal to consensus, uh, but really um, develop good discernment. Well, let's uh, let's take apart the idea of belief is the enemy of knowing directly, um, just to put a, a foundation around it. Um, it came to a point when I began to understand, I don't know, years and years ago, um, that what I did in school mostly was I memorized things and then I regurgitated what I had memorized and that got me my B or my A. Um, if I hadn't memorized very well, it might get me a C. And that's not wholly true. There are some things, certain forms of math and other things where you've got to work things out, but you're still using memory and regurgitation uh, as a foundation. And I began to understand that's, that's not learning from my point of view. And so that took me on the on the path that, are, that ended with me finally realizing that belief is the enemy of knowing for the simple reason that I understood all at once that when you believe a thing, um, you quit challenging it. You just accept it. You take it on board. Um, and it, it stays that way, maybe for a whole lifetime. I had what, what helped me get there was I had seen people in my immediate family who had not changed an iota of their belief system since they were teenagers. Now they're pushing 50. Um, and I contrasted that with watching the tree grow in my yard. Every, every time I pulled out my telescope set up next to this tree, it had grown a little. I said, that's a lesson for human beings. We should constantly be trying to grow. And so what it comes down to is belief is a choice for the most part. You just simply say, okay, I'm going to believe this thing. And for me, that is not knowing. Would you rather believe things or know things? So before, and and I try not even to use the word anymore. I try to use words like accept or other things because it instills in my person that if this comes under some kind of you know, other information, I'll throw it out instantly if I can prove there's a problem with it. And and so I don't know how, how well I did describing all that. Well, I think you, one of the points you hit on directly that um, many uh, people have uh, 
have shown is that there's a vast difference between knowledge and understanding, uh, and that knowledge is uh, what's given to you, and you can express and, and you can share knowledge, um, but that is can, can in no way be internalized or, or experienced, right? So you learn facts, figures, dates, those kind of things, but that's not a part of you. Understanding only comes through internalization of the process and experiencing it. Uh, in, our, in our modern education system, they have conflated and turned those upside down, replacing experiential learning and understanding uh, with knowledge. You just repeat facts and figures and you accept what they tell you is true. Right. And so let's point out a couple things. Um, in my lifetime, they have stopped teaching critical languages in school. Uh, Greek and Latin, when I was young, were just being thrown out. The people who, who came before me had had the opportunity to learn Greek and Latin, which people don't realize how important that is, and I'll show you why in a second here. Um, but I I knew people when I was in my 40s, I knew people that were 70 who had learned those languages. So now let's go back to, say, the new NASA mission. They've named it Artemis, right? So we're talking about Greek gods. But what they're really talking about is the Roman adopting of the old Greek ideas. And that's all in Latin. And so if you want to know and understand the, what the words mean, you have to get a foundational knowing there. And so how many people understand that Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo? How many people out there know that in the Romanization of the idea of Artemis, it's Diana, you can associate the hunt, but basically it's said to be the goddess of the moon and get this childbirth and get this the underworld. And so when you hear statements like their new tagline is we, you, you are coming with us to the moon. We're all doing this. Um, you have no idea what's being implied. I mean, what do you think, man? They've been reinforcing that. Actually, I listened to a little clip yesterday that was, I assume, a new recording with Mike Collins saying just about that, that when they came back, quote unquote, that everyone was saying we did it. We joint effort kind of a thing. Well, the truth of it is, um, and even in all the propaganda that went around the Apollo missions yesterday on television, um, it's stated over and over that the majority of people, they're claiming 60%, didn't want to spend that kind of money. There were too many problems at home, um, according to most of these people. Uh, the whole black community was up in arms saying, look, man, there's all these living conditions down here, and you guys are going to the moon, really. So that was one of the major sentiments, and they ended up defining uh, the missions to the moon as a leader-led initiative, which is just another way of saying the people don't want this, but we're in charge, so we're doing it. And I'd like to uh, maybe springboard off a thing that you said there, Crow, it's pretty salient when when you point out that um, uh, the Apollo missions, Artemis, um, all the NASA stuff uh, sort of, you know, encodes these, these ideas. And uh, for those who may not um, uh, be, you know, be aware of, or some of the language that, that's used by researchers. Um, uh, there's, uh, so, again, words have meaning, and, and many of the words that were given have been flipped on their head and turned upside down and, and given other meanings, right? So we were talking before the show how um, philosophy is now um, kind of been distorted to mean uh, a, a silly pursuit of just sort of, you know, um, uh, what does the what does the color thirteen taste like? <laughs> right, meaningless, it is, it is right, meaningless, right? A meaningless pursuit, and yet, uh, if you the further you go back, you see that all the natural science, all of history, all of what we would call now neuropsychology, every form of of what we would think of as a scientific pursuit was under the heading of philosophy, which literally means philo, right, to love or have an affinity for Sophia, the, the embodiment of truth. So you love wisdom, 
<laughs> That's what it means to, to, to love or to seek after uh, wisdom. Uh, so in the same way, um, some words get turned upside down. So when we, so I, I know when you say the word um, alchemy, right, you, these older hermetic or alchemical ideas, these have been twisted to mean um, things occultic. Well, occult just means hidden. Right, so um, some people get pretty nervous about that sort of thing. Or when you say, um, "Hey, this encodes the number thirty-three, or this encodes that," oh my God, going into numerology. Well, it, in large part, it doesn't matter what our beliefs are. It sort of matters what the people in control believe, and right. And it, it's it's really good to if you want to say know your enemy, or or at least know the mechanism and the process of what's happening. Um, if you hide your eyes and stick your head in the sand from under from understanding the methods and means that people are using um, to, to support and to push these ideas, you don't really have it. You're playing checkers and they're playing 3D chess, right? So uh, I would just encourage people, don't be afraid when you hear terms that seem scary or frightening. Um, there's a, Again, there's a whole lot of information out there um, that, that may be um, to you antithetical to your beliefs, but um, is not in any way scary or frightening. Uh, it's not meant to be, right? It's just a, a way to describe um, natural things that have been historically uh, observed for a long time. So when we talk about, um, you know, uh, astrology or looking at um, uh, the, the various uh, zodiac signs, right? Um, e even those who are uh, again, um, consider themselves Christian and they feel like, well, uh, in the Bible, it says don't use divination or astrology. Uh, keep in mind, Abraham was an astrologer. The wise men that came to see Jesus were um, sky watchers. Uh, and in fact, if, uh, the, the ancient Jews used the ephod uh, to, uh, to divine. So it's, it, there, it's a fine line. You can't say divination is bad, uh, but we use exactly the same process to, to seek wisdom. It's um, Again, a lot of it has to do with intention. So I just kind of want to throw that out there to those who may not be um, aware of some of the language of research, because we try to go back as far as we can, and this is just the language that's chosen to, to describe that. So let's, let's lay down a couple methods um, that each of us personally use. Um, when you're faced with information in the modern age, um, it needs challenging. Um, we've demonstrated that all day long. Uh, and I'll just outline a couple things that I employ. And what I try to do is I always simplify. Most of the things that I look at are so complex that I think the average person says, oh my gosh, I, I can't deal with that. And I'm no different than, than you or anyone else. I simplify it. If I'm dealing with numbers, I reduce them to a single digit. That's what I do. That's the way I choose to operate. But my starting point is always right here, is what I'm looking at made by nature or made by men. If it's made by nature, I don't need to question its authenticity. If it's made by men, I do. But then it comes down to what I'm looking at, and almost always what I'm looking at is driven by language. And I'll give an example uh, from, I don't know, 30, <laughs> maybe almost 40 years ago. I was growing plants. And I realized that all the names of these things I was growing was in Latin. And then I realized that some of those Latin names were not just for the plants, but birds. One example is there would be a name Rufus, uh, a prefix Rufus in a plant name. But then I noticed a bird had it too. So I said to myself, well, what does that mean? Uh, what, what is the meaning in this language? And I went and looked it up and it means red. And for since all these years, I've known every time I see Rufus, that it's implying red. Um, when I was growing bamboo, some of the largest bamboos in the world are defined in this way, dendro something, dendrocalamus or dendro. A dendro means tree or tree-like. Uh, glauca, that means blue. And the reason I'm pointing all this out is because people in my generation were told Latin is a dead language. That's not true. 
There has never been a time when the foundational naming of anything scientific or categorization of a thing from nature, it's all done in Latin. Um, so those are the two things I'll offer up. Is it made by nature? Is it made by men? And words have meaning. And quite often, the roads are leading to Rome. You need to understand some Latin to take apart prefixes, roots, and suffixes. Where are you at, Jason? Well, right off the bat, when I look at the phrase, belief is the enemy of knowing, the first thing that's always come to my mind is that poster in Fox Mulder's office on the X-Files. In the background, I want to believe over the picture of the UFO, the flying saucer, whatever. And, you know, that's a really important thing to understand. It's a very distinct statement if you think about it. I want to believe. It's not that you should believe because you have factual evidence. It's that you have a desire for something to be that may or may not be. So it, it's coming down to a personal thing. It's, it's not necessarily set in reality. And again, this is where we can start stepping on toes unintentionally with people's belief systems because other than whatever book you may be taking your religious beliefs from, there's no distinct proof, at least not usually. Now, a lot of folks will certainly claim to have spiritual experiences and all that, and I'm actually one of those people who can say that, yes, indeed, I have had spiritual experiences. So I have something beyond a belief when it comes to my views of higher-mindedness, and uh, I wouldn't call them religious beliefs, but I would definitely call them spiritual beliefs, thoughts beyond the physical. So right on the surface, it's obvious that there is a very big difference between believing and knowing. Knowing is having cold, hard facts that really can't be disputed. And this is something that came up with Wayne as well, where I said that they just want to believe something so bad, and at this point we're talking about aliens and UFOs and all that, that they're just going to jump on anything the individual possibly can to be able to feel they're getting close to the heart of the matter, that what it is that they want is absolutely true. And they're going to be able to finally show everyone that, ha ha, this is reality. And that, that brings a great point, Jason, is that um, the idea of what is true, right? I mean, that's a, uh, an oft-used quote uh, uh, from, again, from the Bible, but uh, quid as veritas, pontius pilate, what is truth, right? It's a, a profound um, a, a profound question there. And I mean, philosophers, again, if you want to use that term, um, over the ages, that, that has long been um, something that people tried to, to codify, right? There was even a, a, a Polish statistician who, who did a mathematical formula, <laughs> right, uh, to determine uh, the validity of a statement and what is true. Uh, and, and there are many schools of thought from correspondence, co coherence theories, deflationary theory, disquotation theory, semantic theory, right? And some of these um, basically point out some some really strong, I would say, you know, truths or at least enlightened, uh, that the way we accept truth is often not on an individual basis of the facts, but whether or not it makes sense within a story arc. Because as humans, we understand life through a narrative. We experience it through a narrative storyline. Uh, our life is a narrative storyline, and it has to make sense to us. And this is, presents the paradox of, of the believable lie versus the unbelievable truth. And this is where I think a lot of people get caught up. They ask this question, well, why would they lie? <laughs> right? They can't imagine um, why people would do a certain thing. Um, and therefore, if they can't imagine it, if they can't conceive of it, and if it doesn't fit within their storyline, they discard it immediately without ever looking at the facts. And that's also why we see popular famous people like who doesn't love Tom Hanks? Anything Tom Hanks says, well, we love that guy. Um, that's a similar idea. But you brought with you a quote from a man named Heraclitus. 
Um, and it says, because it is so unbelievable, the truth often escapes being known. And that plays back exactly to what we're talking about. And part of the problem becomes when people are starting out is you can't figure everything out. You just can't do it. But there's, it's a far cry between choosing a path that's going to be helpful and just giving up and deciding to believe in things. If you can't figure a thing out, then just put it in your back pocket. Just accept it for now if there's evidence of that, or don't accept it for now, but don't make a decision. Just say, I'm aware of this thing and keep it in your mind. And as you move through life, eventually you'll bump into something for most of these things that lets you decide one way or the other. Is there any reality here? But to get back to the point that is a Pontius Pilate quote, what is truth? Um, what I always proffer is the simplest example of that is the sky is blue. Um, that's a truth. No one can walk up to me and say, hey, Crow, the sky's green. Um, I won't even bother to argue about that or give any response. I may just smile and walk away because I know certainly the sky is blue. And that, see, that's directly what we would call right correspondence or coherence, that um, it, it can only be considered true if it comports to the perceivable external world, right? Does it exist in nature? Uh, and I think that's a you know, that's better to me than pragmatic theory, which is, again, what Pierce and James and Dewey and a bunch of people um, said that it can uh, you can verify a thing solely through, um, uh, I'm sorry, deflationary theory, which basically says it's perceived within the greater context of the story arc, right? So I prefer, I mean, mine is kind of a pragmatic theory um, that you, um, you can verify it through testing and results. Otherwise, you just have to say, I don't know. And um, I have to say 99% of the way I perceive the world right now is this is my best guess currently. Uh, um, my hypothesis um, makes sense, but I, I have to accept I don't know. Well, there, there's another thing that I used to mention a lot, and I haven't mentioned it for a while. When you get to the point in your life when you're prepared to just stop believing in things, and you do that for about a year, and it means you got to throw out everything. Two and two is not four until you reexamine it and show yourself that yes, it is in fact poor. It's almost like a chemical change happens in your brain. When you stop just absorbing all this information and believing it or dealing it in, in the way um, that you have your whole life, uh, this change happens with, I guess I'll call it your mind. And you start to get into a higher human mind where the moment you are presented with new information, it's almost like you get a smell of that seems correct or that does not seem correct. It's almost, I always use the example of, I can smell something's burning in the kitchen. I'm not sure what it is I can smell, but I'm pretty sure I can smell something burning in the kitchen. And when you retrain your mind to quit believing in things and quit memorizing and regurgitating and use your God-given, for lack of a better usage of words, God-given abilities to challenge things to the best of your ability over the course of about a year, how the initial introduction of information changes and right out of the gate, your human higher mind starts to tell you, wait a minute, something's, something's not right here. And every human being, from my point of view, has the ability to detect fraud in this way. It's just that our minds have been trained away from how that works. This is something Jason mentioned offline before the show, is that uh, he used the term waking up. You, you want to you uh, gloss that a little bit, Jason? There's a real-world problem I've actually encountered that will tie right into that, in fact, in discussing the differences between beliefs and knowledge or facts. And that's that a lot of people, when you try and confront them or even just discuss information that's kind of on the heavy side, they shut down because 
especially if it's a dark kind of thing, it's something that they wouldn't do. Therefore, they couldn't accept that someone else would do it, especially when we're talking about some very seriously dark stuff. You might have very distinct evidence to prove that to the contrary, but they wouldn't do it. So it couldn't possibly be that these things are being done. That's one thing I've encountered a lot, and it's a problem that if they're just not ready to look at facts that are, as far as you know, undeniable, well, that's a personal choice they're making. They're sticking to a belief system. They're not going with actual knowledge. In turn, there's another thing that I've encountered a lot, and a really great example of this is the music thing, because people put musicians on pedestals and how much work has been done, especially by the late, great Dave McGowan to prove just how much of this rock and roll nobility class came from the military industrial complex setting. And people just don't want to hear it. It's not acceptable to them that this is even the way things could possibly be. No, no, no. They, they made all this wonderful music. You're attacking their heroes. Yes. Right. They're on pedestals. And and I have a direct example of that, but somebody who couldn't possibly be my friend anymore because I was attacking the music that is his crutch. And that's it. That's it. It, There's no other recourse. I'm tearing down his belief system, or we are collectively here, and that's not acceptable. So you're crazy people. You're crazy people. You can't possibly be right because I believe in these people. Well, right there is the problem. You didn't do any research. You didn't look into things. You didn't find out who Admiral Morrison was, like all these things, just to use that as an example. So it's a belief system, again, being attacked that could be just as powerful in their heart, in their mind, as, say, believing in Buddha, Jesus, what have you. Well, and this is, this is uh, where I think that the, wherein lies a, a great deal of the power of what, um, you know, Jason and Crow, you guys have been doing now for what better part of three years now, right, is, is to um, address these not just in terms of the who and the, and the, and the what, but the how. Right, because if um, any time you attack or, or or they feel like they're being attacked by you, present information that calls into question the veracity uh, or the integrity of people that they find um, to be their heroes, whether that's the Catholic Church, um, whether that's uh, rock and roll stars, whether that's a politician, whether it's a, a an event that we're told hap- happened, nine uh, eleven or uh, or Sandy Hook, that it's a, an emotional trigger for them. When when it triggers those things, they can't accept it. So when you begin to break it down by the mechanics of it, here are how things happen. I, I think specifically uh, of your um, your episode on Edward Bernays and um, uh, propaganda and uh, mass marketing, right? How once you realize the mechanics and methodology, it become and and you don't directly attack. Uh, something that people hold uh, uh, valuable to them, right? If they just see how it can occur um, and then apply that uh, with specific examples, uh, sometimes it's easier for the light to come on. Once you can accept that it is possible um, that if given the means, motive, and opportunity, uh, a group of people who so desired could take over um, much of the, let's say, educational system, uh, Jesuits, um, <laughs> right? Uh, um, take over um, the entire education system of most of the world um, in every aspect of um, science, engineering, philosophy, astronomy, every aspect, and take over the entire education system. Thereafter, it only takes two generations. You teach somebody, that person becomes the teacher, and they can speak with absolute sincerity um, what they know to be true, 
even though it's a lie. And um, they are sincere, but sincerely wrong. And thereafter, people say, oh, I can't believe all these people would lie to me. Well, they weren't lying, but they were continuing a lie, but they just didn't know it. Right. So, but once you can accept, once you can see and frame the idea that it is possible that someone given the means, motive, and opportunity uh, could uh, take take something over, conspiracies happen all the time. I mean, I, I've been working in the in the business world for you know thirty five plus years. I see conspiracies between um, small organizations and companies all the time. To think that it wouldn't happen on a larger scale is preposterous. Uh, and people need to uh, let go of that idea and let go of the uh, the story we've been told, uh, the phrase uh, generated by the CIA, that conspiracy theorist was some kind of wacky kook. Right. It was a, a weaponized term meant to, to mock anybody who questioned their idea, uh, what their story about the, the Kennedy assassination. Let's actually take that idea and go down to the base of information. And Baldini, Jason, let's use the idea that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, might have been the Bernays episode or maybe it was the Tavistock episode where we found documentation that stated we're engaged in social engineering here and what's called the greatest generation or those people that were already adults as World War I began to kick off, they were going to be the hardest to program using social engineering. The reason cited was they had lived and grown up learning before television had come online. So maybe I'll kick it over to you, Baldini. Let's take the idea apart, and I know you have some good examples of what's become of us all. Think of the children today where, I mean, the moment they're old enough to hold an iPad, they're already doing that. They're already into all that, whatever you want to call it, exposure of information, and yet they have not even attended school yet. And so just to make a point, it is factually stated that what's called the greatest generation or those adults that went into World War II, they would be my grandparents, people younger than me, maybe your great-grandparents. Um, they were going to be the most difficult to program, and it was true. And as each succeeding generation went by, the job got easier and easier and easier. So much so that where radio was involved in it, and TV did it in spades, then music was co-opted. I mean, just there it all is. Go, go. Let's let's examine that ball. Yeah, you, you can you can actually um, uh, and I would encourage listeners to go if you have the time. I'd strongly encourage um, go listen. You can easily YouTube a bunch of lectures by a guy named Marshall McLuhan. Uh, the name is familiar uh, to you. He was um, considered just a, a great thinker in the idea of mass media. He wrote a book that um, I read in college called uh, The Media is the Message. The Medium is the Message. Um, and uh, he, what he uh, explores there, in addition to all kinds of just um, really fascinating topics on how we learn and the way that we approach information, but here's a, a perfect example, uh, is that anyone who was born prior to radio, but specifically, if they learned to read and write what he called becoming literate before being exposed to the technology of radio, uh, especially radio dramas, which were popular uh, from the you know the twenties onward uh, until television, um, they they had a physiological difference in their what we would call now neuroplasticity, the way that we learn and the way uh, our our brain grows and and responds to and processes information um, that uh, they had a very different view of the world and process things differently. And that those who had learned to become literate before being exposed to radio were almost impossible um, to, uh, they didn't respond to advertising, neither did they respond uh, to programming or uh, mass media manipulation of any kind. Uh, but once they had been exposed to this technology before learning to read and write um, or, or becoming literate, as he puts it, 
that they were then very uh, susceptible to suggestion. And once television came in, and here's a very fascinating part that most people don't think of, that the difference between television and film, and when I say film, I mean like a theater, right? Is that theater is, um, when you go to, to a cinema, it's backlit. So what, what's happening is your eyes are receiving uh, light that's bouncing off the screen. What happens with television, it's literally uh, light is is being radiated into your eyes and it, it requires um, an active participation um, at, a, at a subconscious level for you to put all those things together. It's basically electronic punctualism, if you will. So it puts you into an immediate alpha wave state, meaning that you are basically hypnotized. So in the same way, but by many orders of magnitude greater, those who have been exposed to electronic um, displays, television, um, prior to learning to read and write are physiologically incapable of thinking in a way even approaching what our, our predecessors did. And now you can certainly see uh, that this is being done. We, we put little babies in front of Teletubbies, in front of baby Einstein. And it's been proven that not only does it not make them smarter, it makes them dumber because they, I mean, you know, dumb relative, I suppose, but they can't, they literally cannot process information the same way and therefore are far more susceptible um, to suggestion. Uh, and it's been proven over and over that the susceptibility people have to suggestion is pretty much directly follows the Pareto distribution of what we would call the 80-20 rule, that 20% of people are um, very susceptible to being, like, for example, hypnotized, or they respond positively to placebos, um, that sort of thing. There's 20% on the other end that just can't, it just doesn't work, and then everybody sort of in between is on this bell curve. So the more they continue to push out these ideas and uh, mass manipulation, as long as they keep the 80% hypnotized and the 20% um, doesn't matter because they get shouted down. And we can draw a direct line between these concepts. In fact, right after uh, McLuhan began making some of the, uh, McLuhan, Huxley, uh, Orwell, they were doing some lecture tours in the mid-60s. Right after this, when people began going, hey, wait a minute, that conversation ended immediately. And uh, despite all these great thinkers saying that technology has literally destroyed our society, um, suddenly the, the narrative change to technology is the greatest thing ever. And the, the more technology we absorb, the more sophisticated we are as, as a society, which is an absolute lie. And then it got tied to science. And of course, science has no concern for nature. But let's go back a second. Well, why, why would these things be? Why, you know, so so great. My grandparents didn't grow up on TV. Um, what was it that allowed them to detect basically BS where later generations couldn't? For my part, I think it's this. I think these mediums program, and that's right. When you watch television, you're watching programming. When I sit here in front of my computer and I write code, I am programming this box to do something that I want. Don't be confused by that. But with the onset of radio and television, it programmed the common sense out of people. And I'll show you how. If you live before radio and television and you experience the death of an animal or a human being, that was rare. You're not going to see that a lot. But by the time movies get here, like look at the movie John Wick. I think probably 50 people get killed every 10 minutes with headshots um, in a movie like that. And what it's doing subconsciously is normalizing a thing that used to be a very serious matter. It's like you used to think before all this, 
you know, back in the day, oh my gosh, something just died. Um, then you'll start thinking, where did they go or any number of things. But by the time you've been exposed over and over and over to fake death, um, it, it takes the common sense out of your body, kind of. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a video game mentality. Right. Yes. You know, the mass death. Uh, you're mowing down the uh, whomever, the enemies, whoever the other guys are that you're taking out. You're just blowing people away left and right. And it is a desensitization of some sort, I think is a very safe way to put it. Yes. And very specifically, it changes the direct internalized experience of a thing. Again, going back to people who learned to become literate before being exposed to technology, they had to directly experience the thing and that became understanding. In lieu of that, when it's just told to you or presented to you as fact, you simply accept it. Um, and, and like we were talking about before, Crow, with um, uh, the, the movie um, uh, Truman Show, right? Uh, Christoph says, you accept the reality that you're presented with. Right. Exactly. There's another there's another old saying uh, that says we don't know who invent who discovered water, but it's pretty sure it wasn't a fish. Right. Um, you, you cannot perceive you accept the reality you're presented with. And so they cannot directly perceive it. When I go back and I look at um, the curriculum uh, for, let's say, physics in the 1920s, um, kids were um, re they had to do experiments. They physically interacted with it. Now you're just told this is how it, this is what it is. You learn the numbers and you go on. You don't experience it. And that is a crucial difference between understanding and knowing. And we substitute the idea of knowing. We think um, information is what makes us smart. And it's not. It's the experience. Well, we, we also lose other pieces of common sense um, because we do things so often. Take, take staring at a television. What's the difference between, and there, there is kind of a criminal difference, but I mean as a physical act, what's the difference between staring at a television and then going and looking through someone else's window so you can watch their life happen? It's almost like this voyeuristic thing. Um, but then when you begin to understand what the programming of television is actually doing, when you begin to understand that a couple generations ago, the greatest generation, they were suspicious of aspirin. I've read accounts of when they first started to market aspirin that the greatest generation was so suspicious that you could take a pill um, that they had trouble at first marketing something as simple as aspirin. Well, look where we are now. Now there's television commercials on TV where this beleaguered lady is walking in with her two children saying, my child needs this drug. When did we start calling supposed medicine drugs, by the way. I mean, it's just the normalization, slow push for normalization of all these things. Not too, too long ago, common sense would have killed on the vine. Well, now not only are people mocked, but now being criminalized for just reading and asking questions about what's in a mandatory vaccine. Right. But that should right. tell you something, right? It should tell you something. And by the way, it is on the insert. I did this to a doctor, someone who was a friend of mine that I had known for years. I picked it up and looked right on it. She said, oh, they took that out, referring to the thermarosol slash mercury derivative. I picked it up out of the garbage can and there it is. And she went, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> again, this is belief over knowing. And this is a doctor. This is a person who takes care of people day in and day out. That, that's irresponsibility on the next level because those people are charged with, with knowing that. Um, so to make a mistake like that goes to show how the normalization has even affected the most educated minds. Yeah, but here's the thing. This is another belief system. Right. Because vaccines are safe. Right. They believe this. Almost all doctors believe this. 
look at how that's enforced, though. We're seeing the same thing with Apollo right now. I don't know how many people accept that we went to the moon and how many don't, but it sure appears to me that a lot more don't accept it than do. And did that stop the messaging? No, it, it intensified it. We're going to say this thing over and over and over until it's actually true, or at least until people think it's actually true. But Well, I mean, and that's the, the sort of the, the premise. And, and here's another great example of what we have come now to know as the big lie, which is often attributed to Goebbels, uh, but was actually in Hitler's Mein Kampf. It's, you know, the, the gross luge, the big lie. And uh, it basically says, if you repeat, you make the lie big and repeat it over and over until it becomes um, self-evident. And yet we're presented that as that, oh, that's what he did to the German people. And in fact, what it was presented in his book was that um, that's what Jewish bankers uh, said to to excuse World War One. They flipped it around on its head. Again, I, I'm not a sympathizer. I'm just saying that what we're presented generally in everything is a lie. So I'm not I'm not supporting one side or another here. What I'm saying is that even that quote, as true as it is, has been flipped on its head to mean something that it originally didn't, right? Uh, on who is telling the why and how. And um, people need to really rationally look very closely at what is being said, that words have meaning, and why those things are. And as Jason described the doctor, right? And you say, oh, oh, it's a, it's a mistake. It's a gross error uh, on the part of a doctor. I don't think it's an error. Right, because the people who are more more educated are more indoctrinated. They are now invested both materially and emotionally in defending these things that they have been taught to be true. So they're not going to let anybody um, tell them that it's not because they believe in that system. Again, this is coming down to a belief system. Not only do they believe it, but it's their livelihood, right? Because if they start to challenge it, they're going to get run out of business. But I think it's right on both sides. They have chosen to believe these things because they've invested so much of their life and they've applied things that they've learned and they've worked. Like this person has an infection and I go after it. Look, I've fixed this infection. So some of these things that I've learned, clearly they work. And so pretty soon uh, belief takes over and nobody is challenging anymore. And there's an old, gosh, I don't know if I can pull it up from memory. There was an old thing. I, I don't know if it was... Uh, Talmudic, I've forgotten now, but there's the, an idea put forth somewhere that these geniuses in the world somewhere put together these systems that aren't true, and they put them out into the world making the statement that the people who use these systems will never take the time to test their validity and therefore be controllable and diluted at the same time. And I, I can't cite the source there because I just don't recall well, and I can follow this up with saying that um, any good lie has to have elements of truth or it's not believable, right? And the thing I say over and over is that the, the reason that, that the mouse gets caught in the trap is because he doesn't understand why the cheese is free, right? There has to be bait for him to take it. So you'll find people uh, in the quote-unquote truth community who we know are disinformation agents. I'll just say that they're going to tell you truth. It doesn't mean that I don't listen to some of those people because they're going to put truth in there. You just you just can't idolize any of these people or, again, begin to defend them if you see evidence um, that they're not telling truth. You just, again, eat the meat and throw away the bones. Examine everything critically. Well, I would say don't, don't, don't take anything I say because I say it, right? I would be very disappointed if somebody took what I said and said, oh, yeah, that's true because Baldini said it. Um, you're no better off with that than you are listening to mainstream news. You're just taking somebody else's word for it. Uh, I, I think what we're all trying to do here is to get people to ask the right questions. How many people, Jason, over the last few years, how many times have you been contacted someone saying, I watched this person or that person? Are they legit? <laughs> And it's like, really, you're going to ask me to try to 
divine truth for you. And this is the core of the problem. I respond the same way every time. First of all, I don't badmouth people. That's not what we're here to do. But what we are trying to do is get a human being to challenge it. And so I always respond, can't you tell by the information? Have you challenged the information? Is there value in the information? Is there nonsense in the information? And by the way, am I always going to be here for the rest of your life? And you can email me to tell you whether a thing is acceptable or not. And by the way, why would you even believe that what I'm telling you is true without challenging exactly. it? And so, exactly. Because they believe in you. Right. That is the absolute problem is the belief. Um, if we had 80% of the society using the 80-20, who one day woke up and said, you know what, we're going to challenge everything starting now. Two and two is not four. Let's see. Going to use my fingers. One, two, three. Oh, it is. I can see right now using my fingers. Two and two is four. No one can tell me for the rest of my life, two and two is five or two and two is two. No one can do these things. And if you treated all information in that manner to the extent that it's possible, and then the things you couldn't prove out, you just stuck in your back pocket, this would be one heck of a different world. But let's steer this around for a minute. Let's talk about source. This is one thing that people refuse to recognize. So I'll ask you, Baldini, um, one of the big sources for information in our world is film and TV. What are those things for? <laughs> Why did someone create TV and film, what's their purpose? Well, how serendipitous, because I was just going to say in the tale of what you said, for, for the love of all things holy people, don't just go to Wikipedia and go, well, they said two and two is five, so there you go. You, <laughs> you really have to go put in some effort on your own or you're not going to get there. But to your point about TV and movies, I find over and over, and this is part of the, I, I would say to you know Jason's term, the waking up process or, or learning to develop discernment over time where you smell something burning in the kitchen. I, I have found so many Easter eggs. I find more truth in television and movies uh, than ever I find in the news. Right, so truth in the movies, lies in the in the hidden. news, as another guy likes to say, uh, but it's hidden. And what they do is they turn it on its head, and in order to create a, a cognitive wall between what is real and what is fiction. So when truth is presented as fiction, you accept that it's fictional. And so if anybody then says, "Oh, hey, people are doing this," there's a powerful people who are uh, Luciferian, uh, you know, pedophiles. Oh, that was in True Detective. That's a you've been watching too much TV, buddy. Um, right. It, it creates the um, plausible deniability and that you can separate then uh, truth from fiction. And then they give you fiction in the news and you're supposed to believe that. Right. So it really does take a level of discernment um, and uh, and looking into all the sources. I would even encourage people if something sounds too crazy to believe, track that rabbit hole down uh, because there's probably a reason you think it's crazy. Because you were told it was crazy. And that's a that's a, a, a detour sign put up to keep you from going down that hole. Does it mean that the person telling you um, that, that you're researching uh, is maybe a little off the rails? Maybe. But um, it certainly is worth the effort to track things down. Look at Haribo. Look at um, Belinikov. Look at uh, people who are challenging the system and asking questions. The fact is that they're going to be mocked and denigrated in every mainstream publication from Wikipedia to Rationalpedia. Um, look at those guys, because if they're being bashed in the mainstream, there's probably something behind it. When Crow posts a lunar wave uh, that we can't explain and gets derided and mocked in every major publication, there's probably something they're afraid of there. Right. So th th these are sort of my keys. That's that's good places to look. If something seems crazy. Um, there's probably a reason you think it's crazy because you were told to. 
you've opened up the duality, which is the problem. Most people should understand that what the TV delivers is programming. But you see, it's not so cut and dry and so simple. If you understand that, you can get to a point where it's not messing with belief systems, for lack of a better term, which you should be throwing away anyhow. You, you should be looking for knowing systems. But take something as simple as the moon. Once you get your adult higher mind and you've quit believing in everything put in front of you and you've learned to challenge everything, all new information, every piece of new information you will ever experience in your life is pulling you to the crossroads and you have to make a decision whether you want to or not. And even if you decide not to, you still made a damn decision. In other words, being faced with new information is forcing you into a position where you have to respond. You got to turn left. You got to turn right. You got to go straight. You got to go back. All these things that you now have to do. Every piece of information is that. So let's look at the programming that has all these hidden ideas in it. And I'll put this straight in your face. If you learn how to assess programming and you simply track to the moon through every TV show, every film, every everything you ever saw, you would have a far superior understanding of what the moon actually is than if you went and got the best astronomy textbook you could. But anyhow, we're close to the top of the hour here. I'd like to throw one thing in to make sure it gets it in the first hour, which is this. If, you, if you're if you fearful of challenging your beliefs and, and what the outcome of that might be, just take comfort in this. If you look at something and if you verify a thing to be true or not true, the true things are still going to be true. Right. So the, the only thing that's going to happen is you'll you'll confirm which things are true and be able to throw away the things that aren't. That's right. You can't make a true thing a lie. You can't make a lie true. But you see, that's the whole point. If people are convinced that this lie they've been presented with is true, then they've been drugged into fantasy. They've been brought to the crossroads and they made a left when they should have made a right. And so what that does is every decision for the rest of your darn life that you make based on that lie you now think is correct is erroneous, the decision you make. The computer systems are the example of this. Bad information in, bad information out. It's no different. And the further a human mind is dragged into fantasy, accepting things that are not correct and then accepted as if they are correct, makes you a bit like a child because there are human beings in this world that understand that thing you're believing in is not true. And it makes you controllable, among other things. But anyhow, Jason, anything you want to add before we wrap up hour one of episode 170? Well, I'm pleased to say that I made us quite a few talking points here just to keep a very interesting discussion going here. And honestly, we didn't even get that far down the list because we each had so much to say just on the first couple of points. So there's going to be a hell of a lot more coming in hour two that we haven't even begun to touch on in hour one that I think will still continue to make a very interesting discussion. You know, I made some offhand comments. They weren't offhand. They were guarded comments I made about the moon at the end of the last episode. And I got a lot of responses from that. Maybe when we come back in hour two, we'll open up with the moon and use it within the framework of what we're talking about here. How do you come to deal with what's correct and what's not? What's true? What's false? What's a lie? Let's use the moon because that is front and center. And even though the things we say still have to be a bit guarded for reasons that I don't even know if I can explain, we'll, we'll do that when we come back. Anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 170 to a close. We hope that all of you will join us over at crow777radio.com. The whole point of that website is that second hour is free speech. 
And even though we don't harm anyone, we just can't talk about whatever we want anymore without that second hour. So join us at crow777radio.com for the second half of 170. Cheers.